Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Good morning again, everybody. I feel like, is this working? I'm so wired up here today. <laughs> this is weird. Like, which wire goes where? Um... Well, I, re- I learned something today. I learned what pants not to wear during a baptism. <laughs> I'm never going to wear those again. They literally ballooned up at the bottom. Literally ballooned. It was the weirdest thing. I think two layers on a pant that just collected water like a balloon. And it's, oh, it's crazy. Couldn't believe that. Anyway, I couldn't bring myself to wear shorts today, so I had to, had to do something there. But <laughs> anyway, um, well, uh, thanks, guys, for that reading again. And uh, if you're Visiting today, we are. Uh, this is the last week of a several-week series on a pastor's open mic time, which at Hiawatha, that's basically our miscellaneous sermon time. And so um, we've been in, in this mode since right before Christmas, and today is the last of it. Next week, we'll be in a, a, um, what's going to amount to about a 16-week series in Ecclesiastes, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So we'll start that next week. But uh, today is the, um, is the second week of kind of a mini-psalm series. We looked at Psalm 109 last week, and this week we're going to look at Psalm 19 which I'm titling My Rock and My Redeemer. It's always kind of hard to title psalm sermons because almost every part of the psalm, I guess it's kind of true for almost every text, but every part of a psalm is uh, uh, important. 
Um, so it's hard to summarize them with one phrase. But I think with Psalm 19, my rock and my redeemer summarize it well, some of the last words of the psalm. And we'll get to that um, in a bit. But just a little bit of review. And, and if you're new to the Bible or um, haven't uh, been a Christian for a while and, and are new to interpreting it and reading uh, the psalms or other parts of it, this will be especially important. But if you remember last week, um, we talked a little bit about this. I more showed it, I guess, the way I talked about Psalm 109. But um, to be clear, this week it's going to really pertain to Psalm 19 as well. But uh, in prep for this week's psalm, I just want to remind you that uh, as, as Christians, and I guess you could say us at Hiawatha, our um, vision or, or value of the Word of God itself and the Bible itself, and this comes out with how we sing as well and teach and a lot of things we do, but we believe that the Bible, God's Word, is God's Word, and therefore it's, it's divinely inspired. We, we believe that it was written by lots of people over centuries and centuries of time, but God was really the one that inspired the pen, um, I guess it wouldn't be a pen, but pen, so to speak, of the original authors that wrote the books. And so because of that, it has this divine meaning. It's, it's been written by him, and it's uh, written kind of with cultural influence and some things that come through the original author, and we see that come out in various genres of scripture, but it's really written by God. So it therefore has this divine element to it, and part of a greater story that culminates in the person and work of Christ. So we believe in the Bible's a unity, and so it's a story. It's a lot of different books. There's 66 books to it, but it has a climax and, a, and um, uh, an ultimate uh, goal to it, like any good story does, and that in the Bible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So last week, for example, then, we looked at Psalm 109, and it's really cool how David, in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Christ lives, writes about his experiences as a rejected and attacked and betrayed king, and then we looked at how in the New Testament, the early apostles interpreted that psalm as reflective of and foreshadowing of Jesus Christ's experiences as a rejected and attacked and betrayed king of kings who was in the line of David, the son of David, but also the son of God. And so there's that divine meaning there. The early church read the Bible that way. They saw David's experiences. It was clearly that in initial intent. But then they saw this greater divine meaning and pushing forward into history a thousand years later where it was reflective and uh, typical and resembling of Jesus Christ's experiences as the ultimate David, the ultimate one who was rejected for us and who was betrayed by Judas and betrayed by really everybody and attacked and surrounded. But it was all part of God's plan to go to the cross and to die so he could bear the sins of the world. So we really we, we read Psalm 109 and we read Psalm, the Psalms this way through these Christocentric or Christ-centered lenses. And so in the spirit of that, in the spirit of this way of looking at Scripture in general, many have actually called um, the Psalms Jesus' hymn book before. Um, it's a common, common way or common kind of, uh, you could say, subtitle, I guess, or way of looking at uh, the Scriptures. We're actually going to look at the way Isaac Watts looked at this Psalm a little bit Later, and Michael talked a little bit about him and how he actually uh, has uh, work out there, one of the great uh, theologians and hymn writers of the 18th century, a work out there in rewriting the Psalms with this kind of New Testament flair to it. And so uh, Psalm, 1, Psalm 119, the way we sing it, or the heavens declare the glory of God, <laughs> the way uh, we sing it uh, does that beautifully, and so we're going to uh, kind of bring that in here a little, bit, a little bit later. So even though Jesus didn't live for a thousand years after these Psalms were written, it's, it's Jesus' hymn book because David's experiences are typical of his later, and Christ fulfills these uh, things. So it's very prophetic. There's this prophetic purpose to the books, and that's why the Psalms, I think, are really, really cool. We can see ourselves in their experiences, but we can also see Christ in a deeper level because uh, he is the ultimate uh, purpose behind it. So, so keep that in mind today. Just a little bit of review there, but, uh, but also just a, a primer for what we're going to look at today. Keep it in mind as we look at Psalm 19. Uh, it's another psalm that gives us uh, a shadowy forward look uh, at the gospel of Jesus Christ from the vantage point of 1,000 B.C., and specifically some of David's observations about creation and law and his own sin. So, verses uh, 1 to 6 first, uh, we'll look at again. 
which essentially, uh, in summary, I think verses 1 to 6 talk about how creation shows off the glory of God. A very popular psalm. Some of you might be familiar with this, and maybe not as familiar about other parts of the Old Testament, but this psalm uh, maybe in particular because it's quoted a lot and a lot of songs written about it, and at least in uh, uh, certain ways, um, uh, in paraphrastic kind of ways. Uh, but Psalm uh, one or 19 verses 1 to 6 again say this, starting in verse 0. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. All right, so David's, first of all, writing about creation. He's looking at the stars, looking at the sun, looking at the moon, and talking about how those things tell us something about God. They declare his glory. They essentially scream that there is a God, that there must be. There's so much order and complexity and beauty and just sheer size to the universe and the world that there must be a God. So it tells us something about his splendor or his power, or you could say his creativeness. Essentially, there is a God behind all of this. Creation declares it. But even though one of the keys to this first part of the psalm, it's really important to get, and verse 3 is a key part of this. It's a little bit tricky because some of your translations probably don't translate it the way the ESV here does. ESV is um, probably akin to a lot of other translations. The NIV is different. I'll talk about that here in a second. But one of the important things to get with this first section of this psalm is that even though in one sense, like verse 2 says, that creation pours out speech, so there's this, there's this idea that creation itself, every day when we look at it, it's pouring out this idea, it's telling us, it's, pour, it's displaying the splendor of God and, just, and, and telling us all about him, uh, at least parts of him, uh, about his uh, characteristics and his attributes. In one sense, although that's happening, in another sense, paradoxically, there is no speech, pulling from verse 3. In verse 3 it says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So the NIV actually softens this by saying in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, where its voice is not heard. So the the spirit of the NIV is essentially saying, uh, the New New International Version, if you have that Bible, the spirit of that is essentially saying, it's translating it to say, that creation's voice is so strong that it goes everywhere. You can't hide from it. It's every corner of the world that that the the voice of creation, the declaring of the glory of God goes. You can't hide from it. And there's some truth to that, But it's much more likely that the translation here is saying that creation both pours out speech and holds back speech at the same time. It's paradoxical. Most translations pick up on this, but in the ESV does as well. So you kind of get this in in verse 2. You see, day to day, the days pour out speech. The nights reveal knowledge. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. But in verse 3 it says, but there isn't really speech at the same time. And there is no voice. And all of these things, its voice isn't really heard at the same time. Time. So it reveals knowledge, but it remains silent at the same time. It's limited. This is very biblical, by the way. Not just in Psalm 19, but you see this all over the scriptures, especially in Romans 1, which we'll see here in a second. But from a larger biblical perspective, creation can reveal the creator. It tells us that there's a God when we see order in it, and we see beauty in it, and splendor in it, and complexity in it, and size in it, and we just look at it and see it and, and remember that it came from nothing. It can reveal the creator, but it cannot tell us about him. It can reveal the creator, but it can't really tell us what he's like in a verbal way that we can fully understand. So like I said, this is a theme that comes up elsewhere in Scripture too. In Romans 1, from a New Testament perspective then, uh, the Apostle Paul 
talks about this as well. This is from uh, Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, Paul is basically kind of saying the same thing, I think, here that David says in Psalm 19. Creation tells everyone that there is a God on some level. So they are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1, on the level of is there a God or not. They're without excuse, because God has declared that or proclaimed that through the skies and through the universe, through the planets, through the stars, through nature itself. It, it declares that there is order behind chaos. There's a creator. There's an establisher of all that is. So um, they're without excuse on that level. But it's clearly not enough to be saved, like Paul's getting at here in Romans 1. For what happens to people who just have the witness of creation? Paul says that they worship it, or they deny God altogether through it. They claim to be wise, instead of, which is the essence of sin, pride, instead of humbling themselves before God. So that's what the witness of creation without Jesus or without further revelation does. According to Romans 1, it leads them to worship it. They worship the, crea- the creation, the creature, instead of the creator, the one who made it all. So creation itself, though, it can tell us that there's a God and tell us something about God. It doesn't tell us enough. It's, it's very silent. It holds back speech, like Psalm 19 says, on another level. So something more is needed to be saved. More direct, special revelation is needed. And... It's a very common thing, by the way, as well. And I think every person on some level, uh, as a human being, probably has experienced something like that or kind of lived this way on some level. Um, more recently, I've heard people uh, tell, tell me something like, or tell me things like, um, the golf course is where I meet God or something like that. Like, the golf course is where I go to commune with the Lord. That's my church. That's my spirituality is the golf course or camping or something like that. And I think on some level, well, if by that you mean that it helps you think about God, okay, there's some truth to that. But I think the Bible, from Psalm 19's perspective and Romans 1 perspective, speaks back into that and says, well, you kind of do and you kind of don't. <laughs> uh, that's where you meet God, sort of, but you actually don't really meet God there. Um, because it's not enough. It's, it's telling you something, but it's holding back a ton. There are no words, really, about God on some level there. There are some. It declares and it pours forth speech, but it's silent as well. So if you're going there to meet God, you're actually, it's very incomplete. And there's a lot you're not getting uh, in just creational witness uh, about God there, according to the scriptures. So left alone, in fact, from Romans 1, left alone, if that's all you're going for, you'll probably end up worshiping it on some level. Maybe not bending the knee to creation, uh, but it will somehow become your God on some level. Uh, if, that's all you're, if that's the only way you're, you're uh, seeking out God, according to Romans 1, you'll either worship God through it or maybe deny God altogether. Uh, through it as well, which actually they're kind of similar. <laughs> uh, depends how you look at it. So, so, so again, something more is, is needed. We need God. You need more. Creation itself can't tell us that much. You need God himself to specially reveal himself 
to you. We all need that. Or we need to focus on things that reveal God to us even more. And we'll see how Psalm 19 leads us there uh, here shortly. So creation then is both good and incomplete. It's very good, but it's incomplete. You've got to see that paradox here. Uh, David is praising God for creation and seeing some sense of God in it, but he's also seeing how it's very incomplete. It's very silent. It's holding back information uh, about God at the same time. So it's beauty and complexity and size. Scream God. Well, again, some, some deny this. Uh, yet its power to tell us exactly what God is like is, uh, is really powerless. And, and also how to be reconciled with him. It's powerless, it's powerless to do that. So, the psalm uh, continues, verses 7 to 11. Did I switch over? Okay. <laughs> Good. Can you guys hear me now? Okay. We'll switch over. Um, so the, the psalm continues then in verse 7 to 11. Uh, you can basically summarize this section as the, he, he switches topics to the law. The law tells us more about God and his character and our sin. Verses 7 to 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rule of the Lord, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. I'm just going to put this down here. All right. If I have to have anything in my ear, then it's actually, it's actually positive. <laughs> All right, so now, in this section, David is, again, switching topics. He's essentially saying, now the law is here. She talked about creation. We see the glory of God in Creation, it, it pours forth speech, and it's silent as well. It's imperfect. He moves on to more specific or special revelation. What else did God do in history besides create the world? He elected a people and chose to work through them. He, he raised up Israel and revealed himself to Israel in more special, more specific, more written kinds of ways. So essentially says the law is here. Then there's the law. God hasn't just spoken through the heavens, but he has given us the written, the written word. He's spoken in a better or a clearer way. In this law, like it says in this section of the psalm, it does things like revive the soul. It makes the simple or the unlearned wise. It enlightens the eyes. And later in verse 9, it says, the law and the rules of God are true and righteous. So God's rules and his laws are, are true. It's, it's truth. And it's righteous or holiness. So we also see this, uh, we also see the perfection of God as well in um, the law. It's revealing something more to us about his character and about his perfection and holiness. So in one sense, then, it was very good for Israel to have the law. And David's praising God for the law here. Um, it allowed them to draw near to God on, on some level. We also know that the law kind of kept people away from God, which we'll uh, come to here in a little bit. But it did on some level allow God to draw near to them and, and, and them to draw near to God and God to covenant, have a relationship with Israel. It, was a me, it served a mediatorial role in the Old Testament, the law. And it also told them more about who he, who he was. So divine revelation then, it, you know, stemming from creation in a greater way than creation uh, gets clearer with the law than it does um, with creation. In fact, David says, more to be desired are these laws, in verse 10, than gold. And you could say gold is a part of creation as well. This is something that David doesn't say about creation. This is more they to be desired than gold or honey. It's something to be chased and pursued and desired as people. They're very uh, good things. So he's, he's progressing here in terms of how he's describing uh, these, this uh, law 
And uh, we see something about uh, God's uh, self-disclosure here in the law that it's greater than in creation. But as we move to the bottom of this passage, in verse 11, uh, with the blessing of law also comes a great curse. Because it says, by them your servant is warned. So it's a great warning that comes with law as well. And we know that back in the Old Testament, it's not here, but there was great blessings for keeping the law and a great curse for not keeping it. God said, if you keep these laws, I will bless you and uh, maintain you in this land and keep a covenant with you. I'll protect you from your enemies. I'll provide for you. I'll give you food. And you'll stay in this land forever with me. It's a promised land. It's what they call it the promised land. God promises it. He delivers on his promise. He brings his people there. But he says, I'm in covenant with you now through this law. And if you keep laws, I'll maintain that. But if you don't, I'll bring curses upon you, other nations to come and sack you and take you away and, and eventually bring you out of this great salvific land that I've given to you. So there is a great, there's great blessing to it on many levels, and David's acknowledging that here in Psalm 19, but there's also a great curse, and I think he hints at that here in Psalm uh, 1911 as well. By them your servant is warned, warned to live properly on your own strength, to do what's right and to not do what is wrong. And then here, in keeping them, there is great reward. In keeping the law, you get reward. So we've got to be careful when we read stuff like this, especially as it pertains to the law, because on some level, and Psalm 1 is another example of this, uh, which actually we talked about a couple years ago, if you guys remember that as a church, but uh, this is another place this theme comes up. But think about this for a second. In keeping the law, there is great reward. So it's very true, biblically, in salvation history, God does promise that. But in one sense, we read this as a, as a person of God and say, well, who has kept the law? Who has fully kept the law, right? Who has done that perfectly? Therefore, who has gotten reward from the law? Nobody, right? The law holds out reward, but it can't capitalize on that promise. It's outside of us. And it's telling sinful, wretched people to keep perfection. It's telling imperfect people to become perfect on their own. We can't do that. So David's saying, by keeping them, there is great reward. That's essentially what he's saying here in the psalm, is that the law does a lot of good things. It's good, it's right, it's just, it's holy, it's perfect. It displays the righteousness of God. But in another sense, it keeps reward from me. It robs me of divine reward. And that's not good. <laughs> that's not a good thing. And so therefore, it's uh, imperfect and unable to capitalize fully on um, telling us most about who God is and, and leading us to redemption as well. So kind of like creation, we've seen two things here then. Creation's good, but it's very silent. It doesn't tell us everything about God. And the law is very good, but it robs us of reward. So there's goodness in both of these things, but they're both incomplete. And I think that Psalm 19 is going to show us that they both lead to something greater than both of them. The best kind of divine self-disclosure uh, in the scriptures, the climax of the story, which is God himself coming into the world through Jesus Christ. So let's look at that now. Verses 12 to 14 essentially say this. But neither of these things, neither creation nor the law, has the power to redeem us. Only God can do that. Again, 12 to 14 says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So again, the problem here with the law is that it couldn't redeem. Redeem means to buy back from something. Paul never says, or um, David never says when he's describing the law here, that the law is redemptive. He says the law is pure and clean and just and holy and good, 
But he didn't use the word redemptive. He uses that here only as it pertains to God himself. The law redeems. It couldn't address hidden faults. Which is really cool as you kind of pull back from verse 6 when it describes the sun. As nothing can hide from the sun's heat, you also see this word hidden come up here as well. In the sense that nothing can hide from the law's exposure of our transgressions. Um, So like the sun does that to the world with its heat, so does the law do it to the individual, the sinner, um, with its sin-exposing role in God's plan and redemptive history. So, um, anyway, look at what David does then. No, remember, this is all written in order. God, David's talking about creation. It's good, but it's, its voice is silent at the same time. It's holding back information. The law is more specific in telling us about God, and it's good, but it actually prevents us from having reward because no one can keep it perfectly. But then here, look at what he does. He finally transitions to the end here and says, as glorious as the law was, I turn from it. David turns from it to God himself. Essentially says stuff like this, to be clear, Um, I added some words here. You can go one more, Gwen. I'm sorry, two more. Who can discern his errors? You, God, you declare me innocent from hidden faults. You, God, keep keep your servant back also from presumptuous sins. Keep me away from sin. You, God, let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and perfect and righteous and pure and innocent of great transgression. May you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's wonderful how he climaxes here. He describes the law as beautiful as it is and pure and righteous and good as it is. He says, you know what? It's exposing my hidden faults. It's exposing how much of a sinner I am. God may, he just gets to his knees at the end of the psalm and says, may you be the one who declares me innocent. The law certainly can't do that. May you be the one who keeps me away from sin that's crouching at my door. May you be the one who gives me victory over it. So David has essentially then come full circle. He's, he's, he's come back to God and, and acknowledged the, the powerlessness that creation and law have uh, to redeem and to save, and, but it's driving him back to God for redemption. I can't do all these things myself. I can't do what the law asks The law can't do it as well. Being outside of me, it can't make me perfect. And then he ends with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So again, the Lord redeems. The law can't redeem. In fact, in Galatians 3.13, as we approach the New Testament, and we see fully where God does all of these things that David is praying for in a spiritual way. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and dying like a criminal on a cross for our sins. And Titus 2, 13 and 14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this latter one is key here. Think about this in light of what Psalm 19 says about the law. Jesus' death purifies you. What did Psalm 19 say about the law? The law is pure, Right? The law is very pure and good, but it doesn't purify you. The law is righteous and good, and it exposes your sin to lead you to the one who actually purifies you on the inside. David never says the law purifies you. The Bible never says the law purifies you on the inside. The Bible says Jesus purifies you. The law can expose your need for a purifier, a spiritual purifier, and David sees that only can be God. And so he bends the knee. And he has a very forward-looking uh, prayer here to Jesus because Jesus is the one that does this ultimately in history. It climaxes with him. He's the one, by giving himself over, like it says in Titus 2, 
by giving his body over to die on a cross for our sins. He bears our sin on the cross and takes it away and thereby purifies us, makes us righteous and acceptable before God the Father himself. So the law and Jesus uh, are very different things in Scripture. The law points to Jesus but does not replace it. The law is pure, but Jesus is the purifier of our souls. Very, very different things. They're connected, one points to the other, but they're very different at the same time. Or you could also say, Jesus' death, or I'm sorry, the law is righteous, but Jesus' death makes us righteous, or like, like Titus 2 says, makes us zealous for good works. Very different again. So the law is righteous and perfect, but it's outside of us, it's out here, but Jesus' death makes us excited to do good things. The law could never do that. Never. Never. And it's not described that way in Psalm 19 or anywhere in Scripture. It's very good. It's from God. It's holy. It's perfect. But it, it could only expose and lead us to a greater Redeemer in the future. Jesus makes us excited to do good works. He, when he dies for our sins, he renews us and resurrects us spiritually with him and makes us, makes us excited and even zealous uh, for good works. So the law is righteous, but Jesus makes us righteous. The law is pure, but Jesus makes us, makes us pure. So, again, David's trust in God is very forward-looking. He's ultimately, uh, his prayer is ultimately in the hope of a future redeemer. It's a future hope that he has here because we know biblically that Jesus is the one who ultimately spiritually declares us innocent and keeps us away from presumptuous sins and takes our hidden faults away, even things that we don't know we're doing. I love that it says hidden faults. We're way more sinful than we, than we dare realize. Uh, but as it's been said before in, in a summary about the gospel, way more love than we dare hope. And that's, that's a great summary of the gospel. You're way more sinful than you, you dared believe, uh, way more loved than you dared hope. Uh, that's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. And if we don't get the former, we're never going to appreciate and want and yearn for the latter. And so, uh, and, but David sees that. And if you ever wondered what it looked like for an Old Testament person to be saved, beautiful picture right here. He sees the the the, the the declaring of God's glory in creation. He sees God's special revelation in the law, but he does not want to be saved by it. He knows that he can't be saved by it. He sees himself as more of a sinner when he looks at it like a mirror and it it shows him how dirty he is. Uh, But he's led forward to future hope, to Jesus. He doesn't use the name Jesus of Nazareth yet. He is not going to live for a thousand more years. The Son of God is alive, though, of course, part of the triune Godhead, but he is coming into the world uh, in a thousand years to redeem, to fully redeem in spiritual ways. Um, so he's essentially saved by Jesus, just looking ahead to him, whereas we look back um, on Christ 2,000 years ago. So, so David then is, is uh, foreseeing Christ in this progression of divine revelation from creation to law to Jesus. Like I mentioned a little bit ago, Isaac Watts, uh, who has rewritten Psalm 19 through uh, New Testament language to uh, help us with this, <clears throat> in his commentary on Psalm 19, says this, Thy threatenings wake my slumbering eyes and warn me where my danger lies. But tis thy blessed gospel, Lord, that makes my guilty conscience clean, converts my soul, subdues my sin, and gives a free but large reward. So I love how he hits on the reward idea here as well. The law holds out reward like a carrot, but it can't capitalize on that for us. It never can. No one can ever keep the law perfectly to get reward from it. But Jesus gives us spiritual reward. And what's cool about that is we don't really do anything. The, the, the gospel is that you don't do anything to be saved. You believe in what God has done for you. So the reward, ultimately, there, there's a reward in the law, but it's never been kept. The reward of the gospel um, is now in this new covenant era that David looked ahead to that we live in is to believe what God has done for you, 
dying for your sin on the cross like a criminal, taking your sin upon him, redeeming you from the curse of the law because it was a curse to be under it. But David lived by faith nonetheless. Even in a system of law, he lived by faith, looking ahead to Jesus a thousand years prior, knowing, hoping, believing that God was going to culminate what he was already doing in Israel in that time of history. All right. In summary, uh, Psalm 19 in the Christian's life. Again, some of these things I've already mentioned, but in summary, you could look at Psalm 19 and read Psalm 19 like this, and some of these things are actually pulling uh, from Isaac Watts' commentary as, uh, as well, or his song even, that we just sang during the giving time, uh, and others just from other, other connections in Scripture. Uh, creation, like we see in the first part of the psalm, gives us the sun that runs its course in the sky. But the gospel gives us the son of righteousness, pulling from Malachi 4.2 and the prophets in the Old Testament, who arises with healing in his wings, and who runs his course by enduring the cross for us, Hebrews 12.2. Creation declares the glory of God, but Jesus is the glory of God. The law shows us the purity of God in the way that is right, but Jesus makes us pure before God, Titus 2.14, and is himself the way that is right for us to follow and take, from John 14.6, redeeming us back from the curse of the law. The law holds out reward for those who keep it, though none can. Jesus grants a reward of righteousness and perfection to those who simply believe that he has died for their sins and who has brought them home uh, to heaven. And it's a promise of that in the future too, now in a spiritual sense, but a physical promise in the future from 2 Timothy 4.8. So all these things are great to do uh, as, you, as you read and pray through Psalm 19 in the future. All these things, seeing God in creation and thanking him for creation and seeing his divine power, uh, the order that he gives in creation and just seeing that, wow, there is a God. And usually we're rendered speechless a lot of times when we just look at the stars and look at creation uh, whatever that is for you, um, for some of you that's mountains, for some of you that's oceans, for some of you that's just camp, the camping experience, for some of you that's the stars, whatever it is, or all three, or all four, whatever I've said, uh, it's good. See God in it. God is a creator God, and he's recreated you through Jesus. Uh, he's brought a second creation into the world through his son. So see Jesus in that as well. But even just on a simple level, uh, see God in creation. Look at the law and see it as good, but see it as something that you can't keep. See your sin in it. When you see a law, like the Ten Commandments in Scripture, uh, the intent there is to actually increase sin. Like Paul says in Romans 5, increase the trespass so that the, re- the Redeemer will be all more welcomed when he comes. It's Jesus. That's the role, the, the purpose of the law that served in the Old Testament. So see that. Do that as well. And then ultimately land on Christ. Um, all three of these things are good Christian things to do. Be reminded of the awesome power of God in creation. See your sin in the law. May its truthfulness and perfection expose your hidden faults and drive you to Jesus, and then be redeemed afresh by Christ. Let the good news of his death and resurrection wash over you today and rejoice in it like David did beforehand. And may it remind you that you're no longer under that law, but under Jesus, who is our new law. The gospel is like our new law, our new mediator between God and man. So, essentially, follow the example of David. And that's just something that um, I think there's, there's a little bit of irony in sometimes the way this is interpreted in the church, and then a lot of times the way this is read as Christians, I think, is Christians focus on the second portion of this psalm and think, well, the law is so good. I'm going to go do it then. <clears throat> the law is pure and right and just, and it should be, it, it should be um, like David said, uh, more desired than gold or than honey. So I'm going to go back to the Ten Commandments and try really hard to keep them. But the irony here is David doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, like David moves past it to God himself. 
David clearly sees the imperfect nature of the law and lands with God himself and asks for redemption as a hopeless, wretched sinner who just needs grace, who needs to be saved. But a lot of times our interpretation of psalms like this is to go back to the law. and Yeah, we've been saved by Jesus, but now look at what the psalms say about the law. But let David be your example. He does not do that. He does not do that. The law is good, but it's imperfect and powerless to save. So do that. Follow his example as now a person of God and find rest and reconciliation and redemption and hope and peace and joy in the fact that Jesus loves you and he came into the world to be your... The the fulfillment of the redemptive descriptions here in Psalm 19 is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of this prophetic oracle that David penned 1,000 B.C. before Christ came into the world. He's the goal of it and he is the lover of your guys' souls. So rest in him and not in the law. Uh, See God in it and see God in creation, but be driven to Jesus. Uh, That's what Psalm 19 in the Bible teaches us uh, today. That said, let me pray. God, thank you, Lord, for your grace in the gospel. Thank you for Psalm 19 today. Thank you for um, the stages of divine self-disclosure that it reveals to us that, uh, God, you are uh, the God of creation. You're the God of the law, but especially you're the God who sent Jesus Christ, your son, into the world to fulfill both things, to kind of culminate both things, and to be the ultimate redeemer. Uh, God, so um, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its prophetic purpose that it serves us and shows how sovereign you are over history. And uh, God, we pray that we would follow David's example uh, in this and, uh, and um, see you in both those former things, but especially in the person and work of Christ and rest in you, that we would be saved by grace continually as people. And like David says, uh, let, not your, uh, let, let me not be given over to presumptuous sins. God, that's just not a conversion thing. That's an ongoing thing for us as believers. So I pray for that for myself and this church, that you would continually, even as Christians, let us not be given over to presumptuous sins. But it's you, God, who do that. Not the law, uh, not the witness of creation. It is Jesus who came into the world to save us. And we love you and thank you for that afresh today. In Christ's name, amen.